Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Donna Shaw is an executive leadership coach, the author of The User's Journey, an international speaker and tin robot collector, serving leaders in the product, design, and tech community at large. Her mission is to help leaders who don't fit traditional models of leadership in tech, especially women, LGBTQ+, and underrepresented folks, use the skills they already have to unlock their superpowers and make a greater impact at work and in the world. Whether she's working with changemakers at storied tech companies like Twitter, Disney, and Google, with innovators at progressive nonprofits like WNYC and Central Park, she helps leaders, their teams, and companies find their story and bring their best story to life. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. I'm your host, Laura Federoff. And I'm Chris Chandler. Today, we've got a conversation with Donna Lichow, an author, executive coach, and many other things. And we're very excited to have you on the program today. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Laura. Hi. Donna, I was wondering if you could start off by giving us a little bit of your personal history, your, your sort of journey, how you got involved in UX to begin with, and uh, anything you'd like to share with the audience. I got into UX, I think, before we knew what UX was. I have been working in um, in the tech world since um, probably 1996 or 95 was the time I built my first website back in the uh, early days of AOL and HTML3. And, and uh, I think it was before animated GIFs came out. That was momentous when that, when that happened. And um, I spent years working with startups and, and corporations on the in-house side, on the external consulting side, building websites in New York and London and kind of all over the place. And over time, as the web started getting more and more complex, I moved more into user experience and product strategy as we were building more like apps on the web, not just like brochureware websites, but really more complex things. And then as mobile became a thing, I um, started working a lot in uh, mobile product development. So that's, I guess that's how I got into to UX in the early days in the 90s. My job title was always something made up like webmaster or information architect. And then that evolved and that changed over time. But um, yeah, I was always interested in, in really just exploring and tinkering with new technologies and new things and, and seeing what we could do with them and bringing uh, information out to the world. And that was, that was a big thing. I, I, I will say along the same journey, I was a filmmaker, specifically a documentary filmmaker. And my interest was always talking to people and uncovering like really cool things beneath the shadows of the everyday. And so eventually over time, after working in tech for a long time, when user experience became more of a thing, for me, it was kind of an aha moment of like, oh, I've already been doing this. I know how to talk to people. I know how to uncover the the cool things beneath the surface. And I know how to then construct a story out of what we're building. And in the case of film, you're making a film, but eventually with product development and uh, web and app and software development, it was, okay, let's build a a product that has that story as well. And so what would you say is the hardest thing about telling a really good, compelling story? So the hardest thing about telling a compelling story is, and this is something I didn't learn early on in film school, unfortunately, um, I learned it much (laughs) later, which is the the hardest thing about telling a compelling story is, is, uh, is rambling. 
and not getting to the point. Uh, and I do that all the time. So I, you know, I probably just did that, but stories have a structure and there's a very clear, concise architecture to it. And, uh, the more concise you can be about how you present that story, the better. So, but sometimes we kind of go off on tangents and into details that don't move the action forward. And it's stories really are all about action and conflicts and, and goals and results. And so if you can stay on point, keep to that structure, it's a lot more uh, engaging to people on the other end. Yeah, I just want to say what a revelation it was when I first uh, heard you speak and, and read your book. My, uh, I worked at uh, Disney for 10 years and there was an incredible story culture and and we in the in the digital group right we we sort of stumbled our way around about how to use that story background to produce the digital products so that was quite a revelation to me i love your point about stories having a great uh, having a, a standard structure, having a way of telling a story. I think uh, you mentioned on Twitter recently that people should should bring that diagram of, of narrative story structure to every meeting and to every encounter. So it's more than just building digital products, right? Yeah, it's it's more than digital products. And I think I learned that the, I want to say I learned that the hard way, but in the end, it's, it's all worked out because what happened over time as I, um, I went out on my own as a consultant 10 years ago, eight years ago as a digital product consultant. And what my focus was, uh, became really helping organizations and companies find the stories of the products that they were building so that they could build more, more successful, engaging products. And what I found over time, as I worked with more and more successful companies and people higher and higher up in, in leadership at those companies is that they would bring me in and we'd start working on their product and they they were always telling me hey our, you know our products our products are kind of fine that's not what we need help with and i was often confused because what they would tell me they needed help with was one person said it really clearly one time he was a leader at a, a fancy tech company and he said well what's my story because you know, you talk about having the users be the hero of a journey and customers being the hero of a journey and bluntly told me like, I don't feel like a hero a lot of days when I come to work and I come in and the director of engineering doesn't want to hear my ideas or my team is a little deflated and I'm not sure how to support them. And I started hearing these things more and more. And it, it, it occurred to me that, and actually I, I think it came to a head one day where, um, an executive at uh, one company said something like, you know, our story matters, not the user's story. And I think I responded, no, your story doesn't matter. And I went home that day thinking, you know, what? I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's correct. I think your story does matter, but I wasn't sure how to help people really figure out the personal side of, of working in, in tech. And I had worked with an executive coach. So I knew that like what these people needed was, was coaching, but I just wasn't sure, you know, when people kept saying, well, what's my story? I kind of started, I went on my own journey essentially where I kind of went out and figured out, okay, there's gotta be a way to find out these people's story. And, um, and that's essentially what I focus my, uh, all of my work right now, my entire business is really helping leaders find their own story and helping their teams and organizations find their stories so they can all move forward and ultimately do the things that they're tasked with doing, which is putting, typically putting products and services out into the world. But the, the ecosystem is bigger than just products. Stories are 
everywhere. Everything is a story. And I do think it all comes down to that clear architecture in terms of, you know, bringing that diagram to every single meeting. I mean, every meeting I ever have with a client, we're uncovering the story of either the conflict they're having that day at work or, you know, challenge they're having some with someone or something they want to accomplish at work and they're not sure how, or just their general superpowers and kryptonite. And, and it's all a story and it all still comes down to that architecture. So, um, yeah, there are times when I feel like I'm a little bit wacky, but, you know, saying everything <laughs> is a story and that diagram will help you solve any problem ever, but it, I keep coming back to it. It'll help you solve any problem ever. So what's an example of taking an executive from zero to hero? Ah, that, I like that from zero to hero. An example is someone might come to me and they um, typically they're in some kind of a, a, a new position or they have the opportunity to kind of reimagine their, their position in their organization, which um, I think is a very tech centric thing. We get to change our jobs all the time and make, make stuff up. And we're often changing jobs all the time and uh, promotions happen and this and that. And so often someone comes to me, they're in some type of leadership or management position, and they just don't feel confident in one um, leading the organization, even though they know they could do it, but they just don't, you know, they don't feel confident. And two, they're often a little fuzzy on what their job should be. And I think that's, again, also a tech thing. A lot of the, these jobs are changing all the time. And just because you got a promotion doesn't mean there's like a checklist and a clear roadmap of what you're supposed to be doing. And so what we do first, when I work with people is because I'm a curious person, I want to know what their story is. It's what I call an identity narrative. This is really the story of you. Who are you? What makes you tick? What, um, what powers you? What is your kryptonite? What are your superpowers? And what do you want to accomplish at the, at the end of the day? And so once we're clear on that, that becomes a, almost a roadmap and a guide of how they can go forth and accomplish anything. And a lot of this mirrors the, the product development work that I previously did. And I sometimes do with my clients as well. It's that for a product, that's what I call the concept story. That's really that core story of who you are or what a product is and why it matters in the world. Then once I'm clear on what they're core identity narrative is, then we start plotting journeys. And what's cool about that is we get to use the same techniques that, um, that all of us are familiar with. And I know listeners here are familiar with the user-centered design approaches, design thinking approaches, agile, lean, whatever you want to call these things. But the general idea is that we come up with a vision of where you want to go. And then we come back to the beginning and figure out what are all of the hypotheses that we have, what are all the requirements that we need, what um, is super risky or scary that we should test right away, and how do we move forward in a way that we're constantly collecting data to make sure that you're on the right path and not spending six months doing something that was a complete mistake. Yeah, that's the, essentially the the gist of it. And then because I have a design background and a tech background and a product management background, I'm, you know, we whiteboard when we can. If we're remote, well, I make people stand at their wall and with post-it notes and big flip charts. Or if they have a whiteboard, we could do that. Or if we're co-located, we'll jump on a whiteboard. And um, it's very tangible, very visual. And the idea is uh, we, we prototype what we can in the room in a 
session. And then in the two weeks in between when we meet and then when I'll see you next, you're going to go out and prototype some more and collect data and make sure you're on the right track. So it's essentially a design project, which is pretty fun. That sounds amazing. I want to pull out so many follow-up questions to that. But the first one I, I want to pull out is you, you started, and it's something you, you talked a little bit about on Twitter recently, which is the confidence, right? So we've had conversations before on the show about imposter syndrome and about the people not feeling like they're adequate enough to apply for a job. But normally, when we have those conversations, Laura and I, it's been about beginners and you were recently talking about taking ownership, claiming the title of product leader. I, I wonder sort of like what sparked that conversation? Someone tweeted something about people claiming the title product leader versus not claiming the title product leader. And what it ignited for me was something that I've seen with a lot of my clients and also in, with the industry at large. For me, probably about 80% of my clients are women. And they often come to me already in a leadership position, but not feeling like a leader. And what that means is that the title often doesn't reflect what they do and the words they use to describe themselves doesn't reflect what they do versus a lot of the men who come to me who I absolutely love. So I don't mean this in any kind of bad, bad way. I don't mean to turn anyone away today, but the, the, the dudes who come my way often the term, what is the term stumble up into leadership positions. And again, I don't mean this in any kind of bad way, but they're often recently promoted and they're like, I'm not sure. I want to make sure I'm capable. You know, am I missing anything? What's going on? Do I have the skills I need? Whereas the women are often, it's like a different perspective of like, oh, I'm not sure I'm worthy. And I don't know if I can do this job. And often they're, they have one title below what they should have in the first place. So it's, it's sort of this mix of not really owning that designation as a leader. And in the product world, we see it a lot. I mean, there, I can't tell you how many 20 year old white dudes I've seen heading up products in their organizations. Whereas the so many women I've known who've, you know, have 15, 20 years experience, they're still like kind of product manager or something. It's just like, there's a, a big disconnect between owning. And so this is what I call owning your story, owning your story or having your story written for you. And so owning your story is being 20 years old saying, I'm a product leader and you're doing it, whether you are or not, that's what people hear. And that's what people, those are the responsibilities they give you. And those are the jobs you get. Not owning your story is being 35, 40 and saying, I'm not sure I'm a product leader yet, even though I've been doing it for 15 years. So I just went off on Twitter. That was, that struck a chord for me. I mean, I love that because I think you you sort of highlight both the, the sort of individual psychology as well as the structural issues at play there. So owning your story, what's the first step to owning your story? If you had to say one thing to all the people who are already product leaders out there that don't know it, what would you say? You know, and that's a great question. I think the first step to owning your story is really is first finding your story. And that for me, because I come from the background that I do, it's, it has to be data driven. 
okay, there's a little bit of aspiration and a little bit of data there. So, um, for example, when I wrote my, I'm now going to call it my first book because I want to write another, <laughs> another book. So this is where stories start, right? Now I'm saying when I wrote my first book, that's me convincing myself that I'm going to write a second book. And so when I did that, I hated writing. And I always said that I was never going to, you know, probably not going to get married. I wasn't so into the institution of marriage and didn't wasn't really sure if I was going to have kids, but probably not. And definitely never going to write a book. And the reason why I thought about the book thing is because I used to be in academia and I really wanted to be a full-time professor, but I was like, I'm never going to write a book. So I'm not going to even go down that path. And, um, a bunch of years ago, I started feeling like I needed to write a book. Uh, I was doing my story mapping workshops and keynoting around the world. And people kept asking me in these workshops, is there a book I can read about this? And I never had that book. And so I started feeling like I needed to write the book. And what I started doing was saying, I'm writing a book. And I just started putting that out into the world. (laughs) And once I did that, it happened, you know, so the first step, it could be, that was a little bit aspirational, but it was also, you know, I was going to do it. I'm an author. I'm writing a book. And then people started calling me an author while I was writing the book. And I, you know, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there, but when I thought about the data, I was like, well, I am technically writing a book. So I am an, <laughs> an author. I'm not a published author yet, but I'm an author. And that, so the stories, you know, it's a mix of aspiration and data, but they're things that you can check. So I'm, I'm trained as a Gestalt coach, which is an offshoot of Gestalt psychology. And there's this concept in Gestalt psychology. Um, I know it comes up in, in design a lot with like placement and, and other things, but that's um, kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. The, the stuff that I care about is how, how the, the brain functions and understands experiences in the world. And so what Gestalt psychology says is that to fully understand any experience, you need to look at what you think about it. So that's in your brain. You need to look at um, how you feel in your body. And um, so those are those are feelings, but often they'll uncover what's at the core of it, which is um, how you feel in your heart, the emotional experience you're having. And so if you think about a statement like I'm an author as a prototype, you could say it out loud and then run a quick rapid experiment and see, okay, what did you think? Well, I'm not sure if I'm an author. Okay. How did that feel? Uh, uncomfortable. How did it feel in your body? Um, it made me very jittery. And then that's a prototype and it's had, uh, that you can then test over time. Three months later, okay, how does it feel? Oh, I'm starting to feel a little more calm as I say this. And so that's the really the first step to finding your story is to figuring out whether it's aspirational or existing. Yeah, what what is your story? The one thing in terms of confidence that I find with the leaders who I work with is that in terms of data, we can mine, we can mine your 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 past experiences at work and figure out what makes you tick and what successes you've had and then uncover your story that way so that it's not just you saying, yes, I'm a leader. How does that feel? Terrible. Okay, (laughs) great. Well, we can go back and look at experiences where you have been a leader and where you did not only excel and accomplish things and make an impact, but enjoyed doing it and did it in a way that that filled your heart. And so um, this technique I borrow is from, uh, again, it's a design technique of um, looking at the high value experience. And often um, it's something that 
you do when you want to figure out why do customers love this thing or why do they complete the checkout or why do they convert? You look at what's the high value that experience that they had. And then you look at paving that cow path and seeing, okay, how do we make more of those happen? And so, yeah, the best way to find that story I find is to go mine your past, look at data and see, um, okay, what is your story? And then it, the experimentation starts of realizing, okay, how does that feel to me? Using me as an example, like even though I s- said I hated writing, when I looked back at my stories from my childhood, I, I used to write science fiction stories when I was little. And all I ever want to do is express myself. And I was a musician and I always kind of made things up in my own way and did things in my, you know, outside the box. And I never followed instructions and um, all these things that I thought were holding me back when I actually went and mined my past and saw what my story was, I realized, oh, okay, I'm the perfect person to write a book about this wacky concept that everyone thinks is completely insane, but is completely right on. So again, use design thinking skills, find that story, figure out what you want it to be. Yeah. It sounds like uncovering that the process itself would help people gain confidence. It's understanding what works well and then how to apply it going forward. It is. And it's a common technique that um, I don't know if you've ever taken any like strengths profiles or done anything through um, maybe HR at work or if you've worked with a coach and they're like ways to uncover your, your strengths and see who you are that exists. But what I find is that when you have a story to attach those strengths to, then it becomes more real to you and you not only own it, but then you see how to apply it in the future. And so when I get a piece of paper and they're like, yes, you're very analytical. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that. And then, you know, someone asked me, what are your strengths? I'm very analytical. <laughs> like no one needs to hear that, you know, but, but yeah, when you have a story, you, you can more likely feel it, own it, and then transpose it to future experiences. I have been really struck in the conversation talking about your background coming from film, but the other word that you keep using is data. So it's interesting because that's something I think all the time being being located in L.A., I will say, right, that there is a traditional and longstanding disconnect between the technology, digital industry and the entertainment industry. And one of the things you just helped me put my finger on part of it, a, a script is a is something that's eventually done and finished, You've got control, you can manage the whole thing, but your digital products are never finished, really. And so like that feedback loop is something you really don't get in the film world as much. Ah, well, you do with TV shows, which is fascinating. So with movies, you don't. And I think that's why certain movies come out and where people are like, oh my God, how did that ever go from a script to production and then <laughs> out into the world? Because that is so bad. But what you see, I think the benefit that TV shows have, I love thinking about Parks and Rec as, as an example, one of my favorite TV shows. And they've got both down over time, which is the um, story arc development. That, so that's like the equivalent of our journey, uh, user journey. And then um, uh, character development, that's like the more the inner workings of the character and what's their story and, and, and how are they showing up in life and where are they going. And in their first season, Leslie Nope was the main character. And apparently people hated her and the show didn't do really do that well. And like in the general consensus was that she was kind of annoying and it was unfortunate because she was the main 
character of the show. And I think it was a half season. So they were even luckier. They got to do a half mini season. So the writers were able to go back to the drawing board and really think, all right, what's wrong with Leslie? How do we make her, I want to say more likable, but that's like a double-edged sword when you're talking about a, a woman in leadership, which is like, how do you make her more likable? Oh my God, make her smile, you know? So luckily the writers were not thinking in terms of cliches, like make her smile, make her friendlier. But they, they um, went back to character 101 and were able to say, ah, well, what is her, what are her goals? Like what motivates her and what gets in her way? And those are, those are the building blocks of a good character. And once they were able to flesh her out more as a real character, uh, I would say it was a real person, but it's one of the same. I mean, characters are based on humans. That's the best characters are like humans. Yeah. Once they were able to flesh her out, they actually, the second season, it gets going and then all the characters get fleshed out and everyone's moving forward. And then the story arcs are engaging and, and it's funny and ends up being, if any of, um, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, it's such an awesome show. So yeah, TV shows get the benefit and they use data. They were able to, you know, rely on external data and then internal data of, wow, we don't like her either. How do we make her a, a more full character? That's awesome. I love that show too. Speaking of leadership, what do you think makes a good leader? That's a good question too. I think what makes a good leader is knowing your story. So that's who you are, what powers you, what does not what power you, what gets in your way, where you want to go. And then using that story to move everyone you work with and everyone you engage with. So people you work with and then people externally and your, your customers, your, your universe, whoever's part of your universe, using that story to move everyone else forward, which often then involves helping people find their stories, the people who you work with and your customers. So that's the, um, you know, the world that we come from helping customers find their stories and big picture, it, it trickles down into ultimately building your, your business as a story as well, making sure everyone is clear on what they're building, why, how, and how it's moving everyone forward. And that's something, um, Chris, you brought up Disney. That's, uh, one of the ways that I originally got interested in the leadership topic was looking at companies like Disney and trying to reverse engineer. Well, had a story trickle down in throughout the entire company company there. And it, you know, came from Walt Disney in the early days. He was a, a storyteller and a story mapper as well. He was very into the architecture of stories. And that's the company he built. And it had a very clear story that was ultimately all about him and what he wanted, the impact he wanted to make in the world. So yeah, oh, know your story, help everyone find their story, help your business find its story and move that story forward. I don't know that Walt gets enough credit for inventing the idea of a storyboard, but that I think of as the critical innovation, right? In the way that he was able to sort of get the story out in outline card format with sketches and everything, but as a way to arrange that linear story collaboratively in a group. And, and like I said, I think that's the technique I'd used the most before uh, sort of branching out as, as other people like you started uh, connecting the dots. You know, what was, what was brilliant about uh, how he used storyboarding as well is he used it for movies, but then Disneyland, the original Disneyland, he storyboarded all of Disneyland. 
And that's kind of amazing when you think about it. This is the the third book I'm going to write in my series, which is the story-driven business. So I'm going to start with story-driven leadership and then story-driven teams and then the story-driven business. But yeah, he story storyboarded Disneyland. So they, in, in drawings on cards on a wall, they put themselves in the shoes of every visitor who would visit from the front, ca- you know, the gate where the castle is through to every exhibit to make sure that that story arc was there for every possible, again, not every possible path you could take through the park, but the key ones. And it was very architected. It still is with kind of key paths that the, uh, is it still Imagineers that the Imagineers want to take you yeah. through? Well, yeah, I was going to say, so, they, still, yeah. they still use storyboards. If they're building a new attraction or a new park, it's it's still, it's it's really deeply ingrained in the, yeah. in the method, exactly they're explaining the experience. But uh, now I want to flip back over to the other thing. I'm wondering, again, as you talk about bringing this practice to, to individuals and coaching, what are some different types of data or examples of data that you use in the coaching process? One example of data is imagine you're someone who is kind of quiet at meetings, but you're, um, you're the team lead and you feel like a failure because you shouldn't be quiet at the meetings that you're running. And so you're, you know, you feel like a terrible manager, terrible leader. And like, this is really no good. And possibly, you know, your manager has said to you, Hey, you should speak up more. And everyone keeps saying you should speak up more. So if we're using meetings as the, uh, I'll say that the canvas to run an experiment, it could be, um, reverse engineering what's wrong and what you really want to accomplish in a meeting. So is the goal to speak up in a meeting or is the goal to move your team forward and make sure that they're clear on what they're supposed to do after the meeting so that you're moving your project forward. So if it's, if it's just, if the goal is you have to speak up, then that's it. There's no experiments around. You have to speak up and you have to learn how to do that. But if the goal is to move your team forward, then we can reverse engineer. All right, well, what are your superpowers based that on your story that we've already identified and how might you apply those superpowers in a meeting setting? And so let's say you're someone like you're shy, you don't really want to speak up, but you're a researcher at heart. I mean, a quiet introverted researcher, but it means that you ask really good questions because you're a curious person. And so if that's something that we uncover might be something that you can apply in a meeting setting, then um, the experiment would be, and this is when I do this with clients, I don't offer the experiment because then I'm telling them what to do. And there's a lot of resistance there and I don't want to tell people what to do, but also there's so much neuroscience and psychology that says that people don't want to be told what to do. And so I'll have them come up with an experiment of, okay, how can we test out? Could your research superpowers be something that empower you during a meeting, move your meeting forward. And so you might say, okay, well, all right, next time I run a meeting, uh, which is tomorrow, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to chill out and not stress out about speaking up. But anytime I'm confused or anytime I'm curious or anytime I'm not sure what our next steps are, or anytime I'm wondering if everyone in our meeting understands what we just talked about. And anytime I want to be clear that Anytime I want to know, do we know what our next steps are and what what are we doing next? I'm just going to ask the question. I'm not going to wonder in my head, but I'm going to ask the question. So that's a really quick, easy experiment you could run. And you don't need even two weeks to do it. You just do it the next day. And and you see how it goes. 
And usually you don't need to adapt those experiments much past that because you do it once and you're like, oh, that was that was not so bad. Okay, I could do that again. And sometimes you might run the experiment and realize, wow, I hated that. Okay, let me try something else. And then you think of another experiment to run. So that's an example. It's almost like um, using real life as a, a, a canvas for testing things in the wild. I'm going to change the topic over a little bit to the recent craziness in the world. And you you talked in one of your recent blogs about remote uh, meetings and facilitation and navigating your way through that. And one of the things that you pointed out was around balancing engagement and accountability. And I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit. For teams who have not been remote, but who are now now remote. I mean, that's something that come, that's been coming up a lot. Probably half of my clients uh, traditionally, and it increases every year. Now it's a hundred percent, but half of my clients traditionally have been working at remote, like completely remote, distributed organizations, and so um, they've had a lot of stuff already figured out. But there were always these these challenges that would come up. Where how to put it? Like they would sometimes rely on Slack too much. And everyone was so afraid of FaceTime and bothering people with meetings that they would over-index towards Slack. And and it ended up like there were certain things that would have just been easier as a five-minute conversation. And so it might be like there's someone who's working for you and you're not sure if they're getting their work done on time. You're not sure like what kind of what's going on. And there's a lot of ambiguity there. And so what I found for those folks is that they'd often realize, okay, sometimes a quick call or, uh, and often they start doing it by phone too, just like a quick call, quick, quick check-in, or maybe a five minute stand up with, you know, this person every day or whatever it is would help that, you know, that's what I found with the, the remote folks who have been doing it for years, but bad things happen on Slack. And I know it happened last year, like, um, that, uh, company away, the suitcase company, like there's some crazy shit that happens on Slack that really should not happen on Slack, like very important memos that get leaked to the press and, and things that really should have been an all hands meeting and a discussion and a conversation that's facilitated by professional. And, you know, that's something that comes up and to sort of tie stories into it. It's like, there's so much room for interpretation with um, written word that if it's more complex, it, the meaning gets lost in something like Slack. Um, and I say Slack because email, no one wants to use email. So people are <laughs> using email less, but then and Slack, the, I think the stories often just get misconstrued and transformed to things that they're not. And for the folks who are suddenly remote, that's tough because I think working remotely as a company is something is a cultural thing that that organizations have had a long time to develop, and um, you can't just like change the culture of a multinational corporation like that. And so um, it is something that I, I do think people are struggling, which is adapting to being remote and figuring out, all right, what is our mode of communication? How do we want to operate as a team? It's almost like you're going back to the drawing board and figuring out like your team code and your team superpowers and how best to function. But it's important because it's a, it is a new context and a new way of working. And you do have to go back to the foundational stuff. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that in some ways, right, the digital tools remove too much friction. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that everybody had this experience, but I've heard a lot, right, of people saying, wow, it was so easy for us to go remote. 
We didn't realize it, it, but one day we're not remote and then the next day we are. But because of that, I don't think people really necessarily have taken the time to think through some of those important distinctions, right? Like makes me think, right, that people should have some sort of thoughtful process about what conversations do we have together over video, what conversations do we have or don't have in Slack, which I think is a great great point there versus email communications. Like I don't think anybody really, the channels just all blur together. And so people haven't really thought through the different implications of the communications. Yeah. And I think what's really important in, in what you just said is that if something is really easy for you, it doesn't mean it's easy for everyone. And that's where I think it's it's really, really important for leaders in any organization to to like be on the pulse of, of the people working there to constantly be finding out their stories and what's really going on for them because that's um, that's one story that you could assume applies to everyone. And then you can contrast that to what I'm often hearing on the ground from folks is they're struggling because their kids are home or they're not sure if schools are going to close again or they're struggling because they live alone and they're getting really angsty and cabin fever and it's driving them crazy or um, they're, they're feeling feeling guilty because they live alone, they don't have kids and they should be working 12 hours a day or they're feeling guilty because they have kids and they can't work even eight hours a day. And so there's a lot going on under the surface. And I do think the most effective leaders are constantly checking in with folks and seeing how they can support them. On the flip side, um, the folks below, it's a lot of work, but you can speak up. It's just that it shouldn't be on the people down below to speak up all the time. You want to be checking in because even if things seem okay, um, a lot of people, they're adjusting, but it's still now that we've been doing this for many months, it's still... There's a lot of stress I'm finding and stress, um, you know, the neuroscience behind stress is like people just don't perform at work uh, optimally when they're, when they're stressed. So you're not getting the best work product. So ultimately this, you know, it does impact the bottom line and it's worth, it's worth seeing how to support people. And sometimes all people need to do is just vent and talk and then they feel better because this uh, virus is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. So we can't fix the situation, but we can at least let people just, you know, process it. So Donna, after you write your series of books, what would you say you would like your legacy to be in our industry? I get this often when I give talks or when people read my my book or blog posts. Um, I love it when someone comes up to me and says, huh, I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's kind of cool. I want to go try that. I, I love making people think differently. I mean, it's a little, you know, cliche. That's like what Apple turned into marketing slogan. But I love making people think differently. I love having people see patterns and opportunities that are, are there lurking beneath the surface that they didn't know existed, but that can be really exciting and open up possibilities and opportunities to do great things in the world. So if there's yeah, there's one thing that um, I can, one stamp that I can uh, put on, on our industry is just getting people to get outside their heads a little bit and think differently about the possibilities. That's yeah. great. Let me just ask you, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you or find out a little bit more about your coaching services or follow what's going on with Donna? 
I'm on Twitter. That's a really good way to reach me. And on my website, if you go to donnalishow.com and you can find the spelling, uh, I assume on the podcast page, my, my last name is kind of a funny last name. But if you go to donnalishow.com, I've got a story mapping worksheet that you can download to find your story as a leader. And that's a really cool exercise that I do with clients and I give it away for free too, because I like putting things out there and, uh, um, and, uh, and I did that before I decided I was going to write another book. I figured I'm just going to give it away for free. But you can download the story mapping workshops to find your story as a leader. And um, I've got tons of articles and, and other things, uh, other worksheets on there as well. And I'm always looking for wonderful leaders to work with as uh, new clients. So if, if any of you are interested in working with me, definitely reach out. That's wonderful. Well, we are happy to promote you. We're definitely big fans. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Laura and Chris. This is, it was awesome chatting with you. Totally appreciate you. Thanks so much. Likewise. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE dot IS.